0: Chapter Six of Harrington by Maria Edgeworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jenny Bradshaw. Chapter Six. My recollection of Lady De Brantefield proved wonderfully correct. She gave me back the image I had in my mind—a stiff, haughty-looking picture of a faded old beauty, adhering religiously to the fashion of the times when she had been worshipped. She made it a point to wear the old headdress exactly she was in black in a hoop of vast circumference and she looked and moved as if her being countess de Brantefield in her own right and concentring in her person five baronies ought to be for ever present to the memory of all mankind as it was to her own my mother presented me to her ladyship The ceremony of introduction between a young gentleman and an old lady of those times, performed on his part with a low bow and look of profound deference, on hers with back-stepping curtsy and bridled head, was very different from the nodding, bobbing trick of the present day. As soon as the finale of Lady de Brantfield's sentence, touching honour, happiness and family connection would permit, I receded and turned from the mother to the daughter, little Lady Anne Mowbray, a light, fantastic figure decked with daisies pied, covered with a profusion of tiny French flowers, whose invisible wire stalks kept in perpetual motion as she turned her pretty head from side to side. Smiling, sighing, tittering, flirting with the officers round her, Lady Anne appeared, and seemed as if she delighted in appearing, as perfect a contrast as possible to her august and formidable mother. The daughter had seen the ill effect of the mother's haughty demeanour, and mistaking reverse of wrong for right— had given reserve and dignity to the winds. Taught by the happy example of Colonel Topham, who preceded me, I learned that the low bow would have been here quite out of place. The sliding bow was for Lady Anne, and the way was to dash into nonsense with her directly, and full into the midst of nonsense I dashed. Though her ladyship's perfect accessibility seemed to promise prompt reply to any question that could be asked. Yet the single one about which I felt any curiosity, I could not contrive to introduce during the first three hours I was in her ladyship's company. There was such a quantity of preliminary nonsense to get through, and so many previous questions to be disposed of. For example, I was first to decide which of three colours I preferred, all of them pronounced to be the prettiest in the universe, Bout de Paris, Aure de l'Empereur, and a suppressed sigh at that moment lady anne wore the suppressed sigh but i did not know it i mistook it for beau de paris conceive my ignorance no two things in nature not a horse chestnut and a chestnut horse could be more different conceive my confusion and colonels topham and beauclerk standing by but i recovered myself in public opinion by admiring the slipper on her ladyship's little foot now i showed my taste for this slipper had but the night before arrived express from paris and it was called a veneille and how a slipper with a heel so high and a quarter so low could be kept on the foot or how the fair could walk in it i could not conceive except by the special care of her guardian sylph after the veneille had fixed all eyes as desired the lady turning alternately to Colonels Topham and Beauclerk, with rapid gestures of ecstasy, exclaimed, The Poof, the poof! Oh, on Wednesday I shall have the poof. Now, what manner of thing a poof might be, I had not the slightest conception. It requireth, said Bacon, great cunning of a man in discourse, to seem to know that which he knoweth not. Warned by Bout de Paris and this suppressed sigh, this time I found safety in silence. I listened and learned, first that un pouf was the most charming thing in the creation, next that nobody upon earth could be seen in Paris without one, that one was coming from Mademoiselle Berlin, per favour of Miss Wilkes, for Lady Anne Mowbray, and that it would be on her head on Wednesday, and Colonel Topham swore that there would be no resisting her ladyship in the pouf, she would look so killing. So killing was the Colonel's last." i now thought that i had lady anne's ear to myself but she ran on to something else and i was forced to follow as she skimmed over fields of nonsense at last she did stop to take breath and i did get in my one question to which her ladyship replied poor fowler frightened me lord no like her oh yes dote upon fowler didn't you no you hated her i remember well but i assure you she's the best creature in the world i could always make her do just what i pleased positively i must make you make it up with her if i can remember it when she comes up to town she is to come up for my birthday mamma you know generally leaves her at the priory to take care of all the old trumpery and show the place you know it's a show-place but i tell colonel topham when i've a place of my own i positively will have it modern and all the furniture in the very newest style i'm so sick of old relics natural you know when i have been having a surfeit all my life of old beds and chairs and john of gaunt and the black prince "'but the Black Prince, I remember, "'was always a vast favourite of yours. "'Well, but poor Fowler, you must like her, too. "'I assure you she always speaks with tenderness of you. "'She's really the best old soul, "'for she's growing oldish, but so faithful, "'and so sincere, too. "'Only flatters Mamma sometimes so. "'I can hardly help laughing in her face. "'But then you know Mamma and old ladies, "'when they come to that pass, "'must be flattered to keep them up. "'Tis but charitable. "'Really right. "'Poor Fowler's daughter is to be my maid.' i did not know fowler had a daughter and a daughter grown up nancy fowler not no oh yes quite grown up fit to be married only a year younger than i am and there's our old apothecary in the country has taken such a fancy to her but he's too old and wiggy but it would make a sort of lady of her and her mother will have it so but she shan't i've no notion of compulsion nancy shall be my maid for she is quite out of the common style can copy verses for one i've no time you know and draws patterns in a minute I declare, I don't know which I love best, Fowler or Nancy. Poor old Fowler, I think. Do you know she says I'm so like the print of the Queen of France, it never struck me. But I'll go and ask Topham. I perceived that Fowler, wiser grown, had learned how much more secure the reign of flattery is than the reign of terror. She was now, as I found, supreme in the favour of both her young and old lady. The specimen I have given of Lady Anne Mowbray's conversation, or rather of lady anne's mode of talking will i fancy be amply sufficient to satiate all curiosity concerning her ladyship's understanding and character she had indeed like most of the young ladies her companions no character at all female conversation in general was at this time very different from what it is in our happier days a few bright stars had risen and shone and been admired but the useful light had not diffused itself Miss Talbot's and Miss Carter's learning and piety, Mrs. Montague's genius, Mrs. Vasey's elegance, and Mrs. Boscoen's polished ease, had brought female literature into fashion in certain favoured circles, but it had not, as it has now, become general in almost every rank of life. Young ladies had, it is true, got beyond the spectator and the guardian. Richardson's novels had done much towards opening a larger field of discussion one of miss burney's excellent novels had appeared and had made an era in london conversation but still it was rather venturing out of the safe course for a young lady to talk of books even of novels it was not as it is now expected that she should know what is going on in the literary world the edinburgh and quarterly reviews and varieties of literary and scientific journals had not allured to brighter worlds and led the way before there was a regular demand and an established market there were certain hawkers and peddlers of literature fetchers and carriers of bays and at every turn copies of impromptus, charades and lines by the honourable miss c and the honourable mrs d were put into my hands by young ladies begging for praise which it was seldom in my power conscientiously to bestow i early had a foreboding one of my mother's presentiments that i should come to disgrace with lady anne mowbray about some of these cursed scraps of poetry her ladyship had one shall i say peculiarity she could not bear that any one should differ from her in matters of taste and though she regularly disclaimed being a reading lady she was most assured of what she was most ignorant with the assistance of fowler's flattery together with that of all the hangers-on at Brantefield priory her temper had been rendered incapable of bearing contradiction But this defect was not immediately apparent. On the contrary, Lady Anne was generally thought a pleasant, good-humoured creature, and most people wondered that the daughter could be so different from the mother. Lady de Branterfield was universally known to be positive and prejudiced. Her prejudices were old-fashioned, and ran directly counter to the habits of her acquaintance. Lady Anne's, on the contrary, were all in favour of the present fashion, whatever it might be, and ran smoothly with the popular stream the violence of her temper could therefore scarcely be suspected till something opposed the current a small obstacle would then do the business would raise the stream suddenly to a surprising height and would produce a tremendous noise it was my ill fortune one unlucky day to cross lady anne mowbray's humour and to oppose her opinion it was about a trifle but trifles indeed made with her the sum of human things She came one morning, as it was her custom, to loiter away her time at my mother's till the proper hour for going out to visit. For five minutes she sat at some fashionable kind of work, wafer work, I think it was called, a work which has been long since consigned to the mice. Then her ladyship yawned, and exclaiming, Oh, those lines of Lord Chesterfield's which Colonel Topham gave me! I'll copy them into my album. Where's my album? Mrs. Harrington, I lent it to you. Oh, here it is. Mr. Harrington, you will finish copying this for me so I was set down to the album to copy, advice to a lady in autumn. "'Ass's milk, half a pint, take at seven, or before.' My mother, who saw that I did not relish the ass's milk, put in a word for me. "'My dear Lady Anne, it is not worth while to write these lines in your album, for they were in print long ago, in every lady's old memorandum-book, and in Dodsley's collection, I believe. "'But still that was quite a different thing,' Lady Anne said, "'from having them in her album, so Mr. Harrington must be so good.' I did not understand the particular use, of copying in my illegible hand what could be so much better read in print, but it was all sufficient that her ladyship chose it. When I had copied the verses I must, Lady Anne said, read the lines and admire them, but I had read them twenty times before, and I could not say that they were as fresh the twentieth reading as at the first. "'Lord Mowbray came in, and she ran to her brother. "'Mowbray, can anything in nature be prettier than these verses of Lord Chesterfield? "'Mowbray, you, who are a judge, listen to these two lines. "'The Jews of the evening moat carefully shun, "'those tears of the sky for the loss of the sun. "'Now here's your friend, Mr. Harrington, "'says it's only a prettiness and something about Ovid. "'I'm sure I wish you'd advise some of your friends "'to leave their classics as you did at the Musty University. "'What have we to do with Ovid in London?' you yourself mr harrington who set up for such a critic what fault can you find pray with keep all cold from your breast there's already too much by the lady's tone of voice raised complexion and whole air of the head i saw the danger was imminent and to avoid the coming storm i sheltered myself under the cover of modesty but mowbray dragged me out to make sport for himself oh harrington that will never do no critic no judge you with all your college honours fresh about you come come harrington pronounce you must is this poetry or not keep all cold from your breast there's already too much whether prose or poetry i pronounce it to be very good advice good advice the thing of all others i have the most detested from my childhood cried lady anne but i insist upon it it is good poetry mr harrington and equally good grammar and good english and good sense cried her brother in an ironical tone come harrington acknowledge it all man all equally never stop halfway when a young and such a young lady summons you to surrender to her your truth taste and common sense Give her a the plea or you'll get na good of a woman's hands so sir so my lord you are against me too and you are mocking me too i find i humbly thank you gentlemen cried lady anne in a high tone of disdain from a colonel in the army and a nobleman who has been on the continent i might have expected more politeness from a cambridge scholar no wonder my mother laid down her netting in the middle of a row and came to keep the peace but it was too late lady anne was deaf and blind with passion she confessed she could not see of what use either of the universities were in this world except to make bears and boars of young men her ladyship fluent in anger beyond conception poured as she turned from her brother to me and from me to her brother a flood of nonsense which when it had once broken bounds there was no restraining in its course amazed at the torrent my mother stood aghast mowbray burst into unextinguishable laughter i preserved my gravity as long as i possibly could i felt the risible infection seizing me and that malicious mowbray just when he saw me in the struggle the agony sent me back such an image of my own length of face that there was no withstanding it. I, too, breaking all bounds of decorum, gave way to visible and audible laughter, and from which I was first recovered by seeing the lady burst into tears, and by hearing at the same moment my mother pronounce in a tone of grave displeasure, "'Very ill-bred, Harrington!' My mother's tone of displeasure affecting me much more than the young lady's tears, I hastened to beg pardon, and I humbled myself before Lady Anne.' but she spurned me and mowbray laughed the more mowbray i believe really wished that i should like his sister yet he could not refrain from indulging his taste for ridicule even at her expense my mother wondered how lord mowbray could tease his sister in such a manner and as for harrington she really thought he had known that the first law of good breeding is never to say or do anything that can hurt another person's feelings never intentionally to hurt another's feelings ma'am said i i hope you will allow me to plead the innocence of my intentions oh yes there was no malicious intent not guilty not guilty cried mowbray "Anne, you acquit him there don't you Anne?" Anne sobbed but spoke not it is little consolation and no compensation to the person who is hurt said my mother that the offender pleads he did not mean to say or do anything rude a rude thing is a rude thing the intention is nothing all we are to judge of is the fact Well, but after all, in fact, said Mowbray, there was nothing to make anybody seriously angry. Of that everybody's own feelings must be the best judge, said my mother, the best and the sole judge. Thank heaven that is not the law of libel yet, not the law of the land yet, said Mowbray, no, knowing what we may come to. Would it not be hard, ma'am, to constitute the feelings of one person always sole judge of the intentions of another?' though in cases like the present I submit, let it be a ruled case that the sensibility of a lady shall be the measure of a gentleman's guilt.' "'I don't judge of these things by rule and measure,' said my mother. Try my smelling-bottle, my dear. Very few people, especially women of delicate nerves and quick feelings, could, as my mother observed, bear to be laughed at, particularly by those they loved, and especially before other people who did not know them perfectly.' My mother was persuaded, she said, that Lord Mowbray had not reflected on all this when he had laughed so inconsiderately. Mowbray allowed that he certainly had not reflected when he had laughed inconsiderately. So come, come, Anne, Sister Anne, be friends. Then, playfully tapping his sister on the back, the pretty but sullen back of the neck, he tried to raise the drooping head, but finding the chin resist the upward motion and retire resentfully from his touch, he turned upon his heel and addressing himself to me, "'Well, Harrington,' said he, "'the news of the day, the news of the theatre, "'which I was bringing you full speed "'when I stumbled upon this cursed half-pint of asses' milk "'which Mrs. Harrington was so angry with me for overturning. "'But what's the news, my lord?' said my mother. "'News, not for you, ma'am, only for Harrington. "'News of the Jews.' "'The Jews,' said my mother. "'The Jews,' said I, both in the same breath, "'but with a very different tone.' "'Jews,' did I say, replied Mowbray. "'Jew,' I should have said. "'Mr. Montenero,' cried I, montenero can you think of nothing but mr montenero whom you've never seen and never will see thank you for that my lord said my mother one touch from you is worth a hundred from me but of what jew then are you talking and what's your news my lord said i my news is only for heaven's sake harrington do not look expecting a mountain for tis only a mouse the news is that macklin the honest jew of venice has got the pound or whatever number of pounds he wanted to get from the manager's heart the quarrel's made up and if you keep your senses you may have a chance to see next week this famous jew of venice i am heartily glad of it cried i with enthusiasm and is that all said my mother coldly mr harrington said lady anne is really so enthusiastic about some things and so cold about others there is no understanding him he is very very odd notwithstanding all the pains my mother took to atone for my offence and notwithstanding that i had humbled myself to the dust to obtain pardon i was not forgiven Lady de Branterfield, Lady Anne, and some other company dined with us, and Mowbray, who seemed to be really sorry that he had vexed his sister, and that he had in the heyday of his spirit unveiled to me her defects of temper, did everything in his power to make up matters between us. At dinner he placed me beside Anne, little sister Anne, but no caressing tone, no diminutive of kindness in English or soft Italian, could touch her heart or move the gloomy purpose of her soul her sulky ladyship almost turned her back upon me as she listened only to colonel topham who was on the other side mowbray coaxed her to eat but she refused everything he offered would not accept even his compliments his compliments on her pouf would not allow him to show her off as he well knew how to do to advantage would not when he exerted himself to prevent her silence from being remarked smile at any one of the many entertaining things he said she would not, in short, even passively permit his attempts to cover her ill humour, and to make things pass off well. In the evening, when the higher powers drew off to cards, and when Lady Anne had her phalanx of young ladies round her, and whilst I stood a defenceless young man at her mercy, she made me feel her vengeance. She talked at me continually, and at every opening gave me sly cuts, which she flattered herself I felt sorely mowbray turned off the blows as fast as they were aimed or treated them all as playful traits of lover-like malice tokens of a lady's favour ha a good cut harrington happy man up to you there harrington high favour when a lady condescends to remember and retaliate paid you for old scores sign you're in her books now no more to say to you mr harrington a fair challenge to say a great deal more to her and all the time her ladyship was aiming to vex and hoping that i was heartily mortified as from my silence and melancholy countenance she concluded that i was in reality i stood deploring that so pretty a creature had so mean a mind the only vexation i felt was at her having destroyed the possibility of my enjoying that delightful illusion which beauty creates my mother who had been as she said quite nervous all this evening at last brought lady anne to terms and patched up a piece by prevailing on lady de branterfield who could not be prevailed on by any one else to make a party to go to some new play which lady anne was dying to see it was a sentimental comedy and i did not much like it however i was all complacence for my mother's sake and she in return renewed her promise to go with me to patronize shylock By the extraordinary anxiety my mother showed, and by the pains she took that there should be peace betwixt Lady Anne and me, I perceived, what had never before struck me, that my mother wished me to be in love with her ladyship. Now I could sooner have been in love with Lady de Brantfield. Give her back a decent share of youth and beauty, I think I could sooner have liked the mother than the daughter." By the force and plastic power of my imagination I could have turned and moulded Lady de Brantefield, with all her repulsive haughtiness, into a Clelia, or a Princess De Cleves, or something of the Richardson full-dressed heroine with hoop and fan and stand-off man. And then there would be cruelty and difficulty and incomprehensibility, something to be conquered, something to be wooed and won. But with Lady Anne Mowbray my imagination had nothing to work upon, no point to dwell on, nothing on which a lover's fancy could feed. There was no doubt, no hope, no fear, no reserve of manner, no dignity of mind. My mother, I believe, now saw that it would not do, at least for the present, but she had known many of Cupid's capricious turns. Lady Anne was extremely pretty, and universally allowed to be so. Her ladyship was much taken notice of in public, and my mother knew that young men are vain of having their mistresses and wives admired by our sex. But my mother calculated ill as to my particular character— To the opera and to Ranelagh, to the Pantheon, and to all the fashionable public places of the day, I had had the honour of attending Lady Anne, and I had had the glory of hearing, beautiful, who is she, and who is with her? My vanity I own had been flattered, but no further. My imagination was always too powerful, my passions too sincere and too romantic, to be ruled by the opinions of others, or to become the dupe of personal vanity. "'My mother had fancied that a month or two in London would have brought my imagination down to be content with the realities of fashionable life. "'My mother was right as to the fact, but wrong in her conclusion. "'This did not incline me more towards Lady Anne, but it disinclined me towards marriage. "'My exalted ideas of love were lowered. "'My morning visions of life fled. "'I was dispirited.' Mowbray had rallied me on pining for Cambridge, and on preferring Israel Lyons, the Jew, to him and all the best company in London. He had hurried me about with him to all manner of gaieties, but still I was not happy. My mind, my heart, wanted something more. In this my London life I found it irksome that I could never, as at dear Cambridge, pause upon my own reflections, if I stopped a while to plume contemplation's wings, so ruffled and impaired— some of the low realities some of the impertinent necessities of fashionable life would tread on my heels the order of the day or night was for ever pressed upon me and the order of the day was now to go to this new sentimental comedy my mother's favourite actor the silver-toned barry was to play the lover of the piece so she was sure of as many fashionable young ladies as her box could possibly hold At this period in England, every fashionable belle declared herself the partisan of some actor or actress, and every fashionable beau aspired to be the character of a dramatic critic. Mowbray, of course, was distinguished in that line, and his pretty little sister, Lady Anne, was, at least in face, formed to grace the front box. The hours of the great world were earlier than they are now, and nothing interfered, indeed nothing would have been suffered to interfere, with the hour of the play. As a veteran wit described it, There were at this time four estates in the English constitution, kings, lords, commons, and the theatre. Statesmen, courtiers, poets, philosophers, crowded pell-mell with the white-glove bows to the stage-box and the pit. It was thought well-bred, it was the thing, to be in the boxes before the third act, even before the second, nay, incredible as it may in these times appear, before the first act began. Our fashionable party were seated some minutes before the curtain drew up. End of chapter six. Recording by Jenny Bradshaw.